Let's pray again before we study God's word together. Our Father in heaven, reveal yourself to us this morning. Bring yourself glory by encouraging the faithful and saving the lost. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Everything I need to know, I learned in kindergarten. Raise your hand if you find that statement to be true. What about somewhat true? Got one hand. None of us probably believe that statement is absolutely true. But most, if not all of us, probably recognize that there are some benefits to the things we learned or should have learned in kindergarten. We learn to play fair, not to hit other people, to clean up our own mess, to watch out in traffic, and to say sorry if we hurt someone. But that's certainly not everything we need to know. Kindergarten for you might have been a good foundation, but we need to know more than putting things back to where they belong when we finish playing with them. There are things we don't learn in kindergarten, like how to budget, that work is sometimes hard, how to drive a car, or that life is not always fair. So if you put the statement, everything I need to know, I learned in kindergarten in the truthometer, I think it would have to come back some parts true, but mostly false. Some parts true, but mostly false. I would just note that it would be nice to take a nap every afternoon. So what has this got to do with our passage this morning? I'm about to make another statement to connect them. As I heard one preacher say recently, when he got to what he thought was an important point in his sermon, write this down. So if you're taking notes, write this down. The whole of Christianity can be understood through the two verses we're about to study this morning. Everything you need to know about how to follow Christ or to be a true child in the faith will hopefully become clear as we study 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which can be found on page 991 of the Bibles provided. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible of your own, feel free to take the Pew Bible as a gift from us to you. While you're turning to the text, let me provide a brief introduction to the book. Timothy is one of the pastoral epistles. It is written, as we will see in the first verse, by the Apostle Paul, to Timothy, who was serving as an apostolic representative in Ephesus. Timothy had come to faith through Paul's teaching, but with great help from his mother and grandmother, who had taught Timothy the Old Testament. Paul was instrumental in convincing Timothy that Jesus was the Messiah, thereby becoming Timothy's father in the faith. After Timothy's conversion, he travels with and apart from Paul, assisting in the planning and growing of churches. In the passage this morning, Paul writes to Timothy, who is serving in a leadership role in the church in Ephesus. This letter was written to provide instructions to believers on how to conduct themselves in the household of God. So listen now as I read 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, 
the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. We'll study this passage under two headings. First, we'll look at Paul's qualifications to identify a true child in the faith. And then we'll look at the attributes of a true child in the faith. So Paul's qualifications to identify a true child in the faith and the attributes of a true child in the faith. And in doing so, we'll learn everything we need to know about what Christians should believe and how we should live. First, Paul's qualifications to identify a true child in the faith. How would Paul know what a true child in the faith is? To answer this question, we need to look at Paul's history and how he came to faith. Turning your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3 and look at verses 3 to 6. That's on page 981 of the Bibles provided. Here Paul recounts a history of perfect credentials in Old Testament training, which no doubt prepared him to ultimately understand how confidence in Christ, not confidence in the flesh, leads to true faith. Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 to 6. For we are the, circ we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This is to Paul who now writes to Timothy, the Hebrew of Hebrews, a scholar in Old Testament law, an individual who persecuted those with true faith. When Stephen was stoned to death for preaching Christianity and pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, it was at the feet of Paul, then known as Saul, where those stoning him laid down their garments. Listen to these words, words from Acts chapter three, chapter eight, verses one to three. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. As individuals were proclaiming Christ, Paul was seeking to destroy them. It was on his path to destroy the church, where Paul's false faith was destroyed, and he was converted to true faith. In Acts chapter 9, Paul has an encounter with the risen Lord, often referred to as the road to Damascus conversion. In this encounter, Jesus informs Paul that Paul's persecution of Jesus and his church must end. Instead, Paul will be used not to persecute the church, but to carry the name of Jesus to the Gentiles and himself be persecuted for the sake of Jesus' name. So this is how Paul became a true child in the faith. He received the gospel and instructions from Christ, the risen Savior. This is how Paul describes his conversion in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 16. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me 
is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For if you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he, who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. So Paul came to faith through the one who is the author of faith. He was educated not by man, but by the risen Savior. This is why Paul can identify himself as an apostle in Jesus Christ in verse 1 of our passage. An apostle is one especially commissioned by Christ to preach the gospel. So even though Paul was not one of the original 12 disciples, he is equal in authority with them. Jesus, having specially revealed himself to Paul and setting him apart to take the gospel to the Gentiles. After being called, we see in our text, which again is on page 991, that Paul is commanded by God our Savior. The underlying meaning of the commandment is from a Greek word that I dare not try to pronounce, uh, but it's a royal commandment and a word that is not negotiable. Paul is under orders from the sovereign God to provide instructions to Timothy, and that same sovereign God was providing him wisdom on how to identify those with and without faith in the church. This we will see from the contrast between Timothy and others. After his conversion, Paul suffered for the faith. Listen to this partial list of Paul's sufferings from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 28. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. If Paul did not have true faith, it's hard to imagine him not abandoning the message of Christ because it would be unusual for a man to suffer in manners like these for a cause he did not believe in. But to be clear, Paul is qualified because Jesus revealed himself to him and called him for the work and his perseverance in the face of great hardship is evidence of that calling and Paul's true conversion. Thus, I think it is well established that Paul is more than qualified to know what it means to be a true child in the faith. Having established that Paul is qualified to discern a true child in the faith, let's now turn and examine our second point, the attributes of a true child in the faith. 
I think it's important to note as we begin this section that when Paul identifies Timothy as my true child in the faith, Paul is not claiming to be Timothy's biological father, but as we said earlier, his spiritual father. Paul wants us to understand that Timothy's spiritual conversion is legitimate and not really in relation to Paul, but in relation to Christ. Timothy has the same faith as Paul. Some people may have considered Timothy biological birth to be illegitimate because his dad was Greek and his mother Jewish. And Paul wanted to leave no doubt about his spiritual birth. Timothy was a legitimate Christian, born of the Spirit, a natural child of God. This is important because the letter, although addressed to Timothy, was intended for the entire church and it certifies Timothy as someone to be listened to. So one attribute that Timothy has as a true child in the faith is to have experienced a genuine conversion. He has divine salvation in Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verse 10, Paul points to Timothy as trusting in the same God as Paul, saying, we have our hope set on the living God. This is not the faith or hope of everyone. Indeed, Paul shows a contrast in Timothy's faith from the faith of others in Ephesus. In chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. This irreverent babble and contradictions could relate to a number of matters, but it appears that in context, some individuals were changing, challenging the deity of Christ. So Paul confirms Christ's deity in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. This is what he says. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. No one can reject the deity of Christ and be saved. Jesus himself confirms this in a conversation with the Pharisees in John chapter 8, verse 24, stating, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The I am in this verse is the same I am that spoke to Moses. So this is clearly Jesus identifying himself as Yahweh, the one true God. A true child of the faith must believe that salvation, that his saving faith, comes through confessing Jesus as Lord and believing that God raised him from the dead. It's important to note Paul's desire and joy to see Timothy grow and mature in the faith. You can see joy from Paul's reference to Timothy as my true child. Parents know about encouraging moments, and we know about discouraging ones. The discouraging ones are generally represented by one parent looking at the other and saying something like, did you see what your child just did? When we're encouraged, however, it's a different story. <laughs> did you see what my kid just did? I'm so proud of my son or daughter. That's my kid. We pray for moments like that. The supreme joy for any parent should be to see their son or daughter mature in the faith. 
We want our sons and daughters to grow and develop into mature adults. But we should desire more than that. We should desire for their supreme hope to be in Christ. Parents must strive and pray for the spiritual hope of our children. Singles and marriage without children, and this is not an escape route for you. Paul did not have any biological children, yet he repeatedly sought out those he could mentor and encourage to grow and mature in the faith. This is your responsibility as a Christian, and certainly your responsibility if you're a member of this church, because you have covenanted to walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercising affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. This is nothing less than a call to help your fellow brothers and sisters grow and mature in the faith and show that they are true children of God. In this we also see that the true child needs training and teaching. Timothy received training and teaching from his mother and grandmother and Paul. Training and teaching others are ways we live out the Great Commission. Paul poured his life into helping others grow in the faith. The book of Acts is full of examples of Paul encouraging others in the faith. There's Dionysus and Damaris in the city of Athens in Acts chapter 17, Priscilla and Aquila in Acts chapter 18, Erastus, Gaius, and Aristarchus in chapter 19, and Sopater, Tychicus, and Trophimus in chapter 20. They were all products of Paul's evangelism, despite having hard names to pronounce. Here's a challenge to me and you. Let's examine our lives and find someone, a friend or neighbor or co-worker, who doesn't believe and talk to them about Jesus. But let's do more than that. Let's examine our lives and find a brother or sister in Christ and encourage them to follow harder. This is what Paul did as a true child in the faith. Let's follow his example. A true child in the faith has a pattern of or continues in obedience. Jesus says in John chapter 14 verse 15 that if we love him we will keep his commandments. And Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We should be clear here that works are not grounds for salvation but they do provide evidence of salvation. Martin Luther said it best, good works do not make a good man, but a good man does good works. Good works do not make a good man, but a good man does good works. Timothy was a good man with a good reputation. He is described in Acts chapter 16 verse 2 as being well spoken of by others. And Paul indicates in chapter 4 verse 6 that Timothy is a good servant. Christian, does your life reflect the pattern of obedience? Do those who know you well speak well of you? This is how you can become known as a true child in the faith. Timothy's obedience, like its faith, was in contrast to others in Ephesus. We see this at the end of chapter 1. Look down at verses 18 to 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, 
in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may, be, they may learn not to blaspheme. We want to avoid our faith being shipwrecked. And we can only do that by clinging to God and his word. And this way we can avoid being described as those in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, who went out from us, but were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it may become plain that they are not of us. A true child in the faith continues in obedience. A true child of the faith understands and adheres to sound doctrine. John chapter 8 verse 47 reads, Whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Timothy was constantly nursed in the word, and Paul writes to make sure that he does not waver from it. Paul knows that Ephesus is no stranger to false or inaccurate teaching. When Paul was there, he introduced the church to complete faith, as they only understood the baptism of repentance. Paul then warned the elders at Ephesus about the false teaching, how false teaching would prop up and draw believers away from the truth. Listen to Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 31. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Consistent with this warning, Paul now writes because false teachers had crept into the church and were promoting unsound or bad doctrine. The teachers in Ephesus, according to verses 6 and 7, had discarded the truth and turned to fruitless discussions. The text reads, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is not what the early church had done. Indeed, the early church had devoted itself to the teachings of the apostle. This is at Paul's desire for Timothy. Instead of wandering off in the worldly fables as described in verse 7, or disputes about words which arise envy, strife, and abusive language, and evil suspicions, as described in chapter 4, verse 7, Paul is confident that Timothy has sound doctrine and provides him with clear instructions how to make sure his doctrine remains sound. He instructs Timothy in chapter 4 verse 13 to give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Christian, how is your doctrine? Are you prone to wonder and speculate? Are your conversations divisive and abusive? Are you distorting God's word in your conversations with non-Christian friends? in an effort to avoid offending them? Are you reading false doctrine? 
which includes books like Love Wins, a book that denies that hell exists? Are you falling prey to the televangelists who preach a prosperity gospel, claim that you don't have riches and good health because you have not named it and claimed it? Sound doctrine comes from scripture, not the latest how-to book on the section of the store held out as Christian or religious. So sound doctrine comes from scripture, not the latest how-to book. If you're looking for books to read, try the books in the book nook as you enter the church or talk to one of the elders. Let's not fall prey to false teachers in or outside of the church. The progressives of today want to update the gospel. They want you to feel good about who you are without acknowledging who God is. This is what false teaching does. It attempts to distort who God is and leads people astray. But Paul tells Timothy and us to reject the progressives. Paul says that these false teachers are not to be listened to in order to be eternally accursed. Indeed, in Galatians chapter 1 verse 8 he says, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. The gospel doesn't need an update. Our hearts need updates. So the church needs to teach sound doctrine. The gospel doesn't need an update. Our hearts need updates. So the church needs to teach sound doctrine. A true child of the faith also has courageous conviction. Our brother Derek preached a few weeks ago on the parable of the sower. The sower scattered a bunch of seeds and the seeds fell in different types of soil. The seeds that fell in the good soil bore fruit because the concerns and ways of the world could not uproot them from the gospel. Deep roots produce Christians who are bold in the faith. As one theologian has said, any dead fish can float upstream, float downstream. It takes a live one to fight the current. Courageous conviction comes from reading and studying God's word. Knowledge of the word is an absolutely essential tool in ministry work. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you're called to ministry work. It's not just those who teach. Timothy had courageous conviction. Otherwise, Paul would not have been able to instruct him to, quote, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrine or to guard the good deposit, which God's word, which was God's word that had been entrusted to him. How faithful was Timothy to fight the good fight and reject false teachers of his day? According to tradition, Timothy was martyred for opposing the worship of the goddess Diana. As Christians, we must be strong and courageous. This is how we demonstrate that we are true childs of the faith. A true child of the faith understands God as his savior and Jesus as his hope. Paul writes this letter, by the command of God our savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. There's a biblical reason that Paul refers to God as savior but there was a reason to make his, this known because of the, of the climate in Ephesus as well. At the time, the Roman emperors, Nero especially, were considered to be called, considered being called themselves saviors because they delivered the people from wars and were seen as providing peace. Paul wants to make clear that Nero or no other emperor is the savior of the people. God 
is the Savior. Understanding that, let's see clearly how God saves. Let's be honest. We often associate being saved with Jesus. We think of Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man, the Son of Man is, of course, Jesus, came to seek and save the lost. This is how we think of saved. But Paul declares that God is our Savior. This is not a new teaching from Paul. But as a scholar of the Old Testament, Paul would have been familiar with the Old Testament passages which tell us who God really is. In Psalm 18, verse 46, David declares, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. In Micah chapter 7, verse 7, the prophet Micah writes, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. In Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 18, Habakkuk declares, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Some people don't like what they refer to as the Old Testament God. They declare him to be a God of wrath and anger. But scripture disagrees. Even in the Old Testament, we see God as a good and just God. The Old Testament saints cried out to him for salvation and trusted that he would answer. And by God's grace, we know that he did answer. For instance, he saved Abram from a false religion and called him to a special land and made him the father of many nations. He called Moses from the burning bush and used him to save his people out of slavery. He saved Israel repeatedly from her enemies by raising up judges. And he saved David from the lion and the bear and Goliath and used him to save Israel. Christian, this is not a distant and far off God we worship. We worship the God who has saved, is currently saving, and will ultimately save his people of the wrath to come. So how does God save us? Paul tells us in the verses we're studying that it is through Jesus Christ our hope. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, also written by Paul, he declares, But we ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, Beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. This is Paul declaring that God is the source of our salvation, having planned it from eternity. It was God's plan to send Jesus our hope so we might be rescued from our sins. This is what John makes clear in perhaps the most popular verse in the Bible, John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus came to die for our sins, but it was God who sent him. It is God who offered salvation, but Jesus is why we have hope for the future. This is what the psalmist proclaims in Psalm chapter 43, verse 5. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil with me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. As one theologian has said, Jesus is the embodiment of our faith, the basis for our eternal life. We know that one day in Christ our salvation will be complete when he returns for us. Let me take a moment to be clear 
on what Christians have been saved from and how Jesus is our hope. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you don't believe God is your Savior and Jesus is your hope, I plead with you to listen to this point and think about it day and night and talk to me or the friend or family member you came with at the conclusion of the service because there's nothing more critical for you to consider this morning. You see, the heavens and the earth were created by God. And God created man, that's me and you, in his own image. We were to exercise dominion over the earth and obey the Creator. But you and I, we have rebelled against the Creator. We have not obeyed him perfectly. This rebellion is called sin. And the Bible makes clear that the wages of sin is death but that the gift of God is eternal life. You and I, we deserve death. And to be clear, physical death is not our end. Those who do not have God as their Savior will be cast into the pits of hell and there suffer eternal punishment. Those who trust in God as their Savior have hope in Jesus. This is because of God's saving plan. God knew that we could not live perfect lives. He knew that we would sin So he executed a plan, as we noted earlier, to send Jesus. Jesus came and lived the life that you and I are required to live, but cannot and have not. Jesus was fully obedient to God, never sinning, never complaining or grumbling, and always trusting in the Father. Having lived the perfect life, Jesus died on the cross, taking the full wrath of God for the sins that you and I have committed, The punishment Jesus took on the cross points to the hope that you and I can have in avoiding the eternal fire of hell. You see, Jesus did not stay dead. Instead, God our Savior was completely satisfied with the life that Jesus lived and the death he died. So he raised him from the dead and declared that sin and death had been defeated for those who hope in his Son. This morning, we can hope in Jesus. This is how we avoid the wrath of God. We need to believe that we are imperfect and that there is no righteousness in us, but that we can receive the righteousness of Jesus by putting our faith and hope in him, believing that he lived for us and died for us and was raised from the dead for us. Friends, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent, turn away from your sins, trust in God your Savior, and hope in Jesus. A true child of the faith recognizes God as his Father and Jesus as his Lord. Having God as our Father should be of great comfort to us. All of us have earthly fathers, and we have different experiences. Some of us may have grown up without our fathers being present, some with them being present but distant. Some of us may have grown up with abusive fathers. And some may have grown up like me, with kind and gentle fathers and fond memories. Our experience with our earthly fathers are different. But one thing is true about them all. They were all imperfect. No matter your experience, and children pay close attention to this, the God Paul describes here is not imperfect but perfect in every way. This God is the merciful and gracious creator 
a loving God that we can trust in every way. This is a God who has made a way for us to enjoy his presence. Unlike earthly fathers, he will never disappoint us, will never leave us, never forsake us, and always care for us. Oh, Christian, take comfort that God is our Father. If God is our Father, then Jesus must be our Lord. Spurgeon said it best. We call him Lord with all greater willingness and delight because he loved us and gave himself for us. We own him Lord because he has made us to be now creatures and because as our shepherd he has not only led us and fed us because he laid down his life for us who are the sheep of his flock. And for Christ to be truly Lord we must serve him and we must do it on his terms and not our own. A true child of the faith seeks to live each day yielding to Jesus as Lord. He must be Lord of all that we do, and all we do, all we do must be done in service to him. I want us to conclude where Paul concludes in his greeting to Timothy. Grace, mercy, and peace to God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. There are three or four sermons in this text alone. But we should conclude by noting that a true child in the faith understands his continuous need for the God's grace, mercy, and peace. Grace is God's undeserved or unmerited favor in the face of deserved wrath. It is the love and forgiveness given to sinners to free us from the consequences of our sin. Mercy serves by freeing us of the misery that accompanies sin. So grace wipes out the sin and mercy wipes out the misery. So grace wipes out the sin, and mercy wipes out the misery. And then Paul concludes, when everyone should desire to have, to be at peace with God, because peace is the result of grace and mercy. As one theologian has said of peace, it means not only harmony with God, but tranquility of the soul. This is the grace that we need daily, to continue cleansing or sanctifying us, the mercy we need daily to continue delivering us from the misery of sin, and the peace we need daily as we hope in Christ and long for his return. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Wow. One theologian said of these verses, Paul's opening lines mention virtually everything God has done and will do to save his people. You didn't learn everything you need to know in kindergarten, but friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, everything you need to know about salvation can be explained from these two verses. Put that in the truth meter and it will come back absolutely true. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for these two verses. 
we see the completed work of Christ and long for his return in glory. If there is anyone here this morning who has not bowed the knee to Jesus, teach them even now that today is the day of salvation and that tomorrow is not promised. Cause them to trust in you as their Savior and in Jesus as their hope. And for those of us whom you have graciously saved, we pray that you will help us to think deeply of our position as your children and run to you as our Father, who has saved us, loves us, and keeps us daily. Help us to serve you and know that we can love others because you first loved us. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.